And so the question I'm trying to ask myself to really define best fit customers is what are the characteristics of a target account that make them really care a lot about that differentiated value? It's the companies that really put a high price on that value that say, I really, really need that. And by extension, they're super easy to market to, they're super easy to sell to. Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap to bring you a valuable new understanding of some of the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience. Hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. And today we're thrilled to welcome April Dunford, a tech executive, board member, CEO and founder of Ambient Strategy, and author of Obviously Awesome, How to Nail Product Positioning So Customers Get It, Buy It, Love It. Thanks so much for joining us today, April, and welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, Can you give us an overview of of yourself, your background, and and even what's keeping you busy these days? Sure. My background is I spent 25 years as a repeat vice president of marketing at a series of tech startups. I think in total, I did seven. Um, Six of those were acquired, which resulted in me working at a bunch of big companies like IBM. And about five, six years ago, I transitioned to consulting. So today I'm a positioning consultant. I work only with growing tech companies. Um, My focus is really on B2B and that's what's keeping me busy right now. Awesome. Yeah. I'm sure you have uh, a ton of perspective to share based on the experiences of working at, you know, seven tech companies that were acquired by bigger companies. And the B2B marketing space is, is really fascinating. You know, you recently tweeted, speaking of B2B marketing, um, you recently mm-hmm. tweeted, the two big hard things B2B product marketers need are to nail positioning and the sales pitch. All the rest of it flows from those two things. Yeah. Can you expand a bit on that? Yeah. Well, so first of all, I feel like, I don't know if you feel this, but I feel like we're having a bit of a product marketing renaissance at the moment. Like, you know, I my first job was in product marketing, but I remember there being years where I never bumped into another product marketer. Like that was kind of a weird thing. Nobody had that job. People knew what product managers were and what marketers were, but product marketers were a bit of a weird thing. And right now I feel like product marketing is hot. Like I get more calls from companies looking to hire product marketers right now than anything else. So I think that product marketing is hot. Um, But we do have this discussion a lot about what do product marketers actually do? Because there's overlap between what they do in marketing and what they do in product management. And, you know, and I was having a conversation with a really smart senior marketing person that I know, and we were talking about, you know, what what do product marketers do? And, And we circled around two things. Like, first of all, Positioning, I feel like, is kind of the big strategic thing that product marketing needs to not necessarily own, because I feel like positioning is something that product marketing doesn't get to just cook that up on their own. And they need input from sales and product and, and other parts of the organization, but they need to be the shepherds of it. Like they need to be able to make sure it gets executed across the rest of the organization. So positioning is kind of this foundation cornerstone thing that product marketing needs to get their arms around. And then in my opinion, Uh, very closely tied to that is how do we translate that positioning into a story that works for sales, not just marketing, but also for sales if you're in B2B. And so if you get your arms around both of those things, everything else downstream is, is, in my opinion, downstream from that and a bit more tactical. If we're talking about messaging and content and sales support and all the other things that your product marketers might be doing, the starting point is sort of there's positioning and there's the sales story. Everything else is downhill. That's kind of, at least that's my opinion of it. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. You know, in a variety of roles at user testing, I've definitely been pulled into sales conversations and, and being employee number 90 something, we're now at 800 or so. I remember um, even being part of the crew that actually created and crafted the sales pitch before we had real product marketers like we have now. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's um, it's fascinating. And and I think it's it's so hard to do it well. I remember this like viral, it was a Medium post called the greatest sales deck I've ever seen. Yes. Do you remember this one? I think it was Zora's. 
Yes, yes. I've read this one before. And that, that post made me laugh a lot because the, the whole pretext of it was, you know, we decided, we figured out the best way to build a sales deck and where we got that idea was I listened to my friend who was in sales at the coffee shop. I'm like, holy cow, man. Like we've got decades and decades of sales data, sales research, marketing data, marketing research. And that's how we're going to build a sales pitch. Like based on <laughs> like my friend at the coffee shop said, hey, this structure works for us. And that's how we're going to do it. Like that just kind of blew my mind. I was like, that's where we are at the state of this right now, that it, that we're not building the structure based on data. We're not building it on any sort of cumulative thing of what works. It's like my friend said this works and now we're doing it. And the thing got like 9,000 bajillion likes on Medium. And I was like, that's how bad we are at this. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. That's <laughs> That guy who wrote that post is probably listening to this podcast going, what? Wait. <laughs> That's my genius work there. But yeah. really, like when you think about it, we know, we actually know what makes a good sales pitch. We know this because the data tells us. And we've had that data for decades. And what the data tells us is that uh, what a customer really wants in a B2B software sales pitch is they actually want to understand the market. And the reason they want to understand the market is in B2B software sales, most of the time, your buyer has never bought a product like yours before. Think about it, right? Like your, your boss wakes up and says, hey, go find me a CRM. And you're like, I've never bought a CRM before. I don't know what's a good CRM, what's not a good CRM. I don't know. Maybe I've used a CRM. I've never purchased one. I don't know what the state of the art is. I don't know who should be on my short list. And so when a customer comes to you and has a first sales meeting with you, they want to know about your stuff for sure. They've got a list of requirements, maybe, but they've got other companies they're looking at too. And what they really want to understand is how do you fit in the market versus all these other folks that I'm looking at and give me a way to segment this market so that I can make sure that I'm making a good choice here. And the data tells us that what customers want is insight into the market. And what they love is a sales rep that can come and paint that picture for them and says, look, the market shakes out like this. These guys are really good for this thing. These guys are really good for this thing. And we're really good for this. And here's why that's important for a company like you. And if you can successfully do that in a sales pitch, then I think you've got something that's really golden. Yeah, I think that, that that makes a ton of sense. Which at its core is a lot of positioning. You're positioning yourself, you're positioning your, yourself within the landscape. Like, like if we go back to that Medium post, the greatest sales pitch I ever saw. Well, it's a lousy sales pitch because it refuses to admit there are any competitors. Whereas, and that might work in B2C, <laughs> but in B2B, uh, we don't sell anything without customers looking at alternatives. So they already know there's competitors. You can ignore them, but your customers aren't. <laughs> and all you're doing is leaving yourself open to, you know, you're missing an opportunity actually to position the way you approach the problem versus the way all the other companies in this space approach the problem, which is really what your customer wants in that sales pitch. So why not give it to them? Right. Yeah, I mean, and I think a big part of it, and actually I'd be curious to get your perspective on this, a big part of making sure that your positioning lands is to actually listen before you go into your pitching mode. And I can't tell you how many times I've been on calls where you just go straight into, mm. here's everything about us, right? Mm. And it's sort of like, how how do you think about that balance in terms of right. how much you listen before you you know, show up and throw up, as they say? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So if we think about it this way, right, like what a customer wants is this insight into the market. I think there's a, if we think about a good sales pitch, in my opinion, a good sales pitch has two phases to it. There's there's sort of this, what I would call the setup phase, and then there's the follow through. And the setup phase is not about you. Like the setup phase is about, it, let, let's talk about the problem. And not really the problem. It's more sort of like, let's put a boundary around this conversation. Like, what are we here to talk about? And usually what you want to do in that setup phase is kind of say, look, like we, we work with companies like you all the time. And we see 
this kind of stuff happening in the market. What do you guys see? You know, and we'll say, look, like we see there's this problem in the market. And when we look at other companies, we see them approaching it in one of these three different ways. What, what have you guys tried any of these approaches? And we see the pluses and minuses of these approaches that look like this. What do you think? Do you agree? And what you're trying to do in this setup phase is have this conversation with the customer about their point of view on the world versus your point of view on the world. And can we get that aligned? Because if we can't, then I've got nothing to sell you. <laughs> and so a really good sales setup says, all right, we're here to talk about this, this challenge you're having, right? And usually you're defining the challenge in a way that you know, the customer is like, yes, that's the challenge we're having. Like, if I have to sell you on the challenge, then this is a bad sales pitch. And then, but what we want to get into in this setup really is, look, you have choices and there's different approaches to solving this problem. And we kind of clump the approaches like this and the pluses and minuses look like this for different kinds of companies. But tell me, right? Like, tell me, have you tried any of these approaches? Would you agree that they clump out like this? Have we missed something? We think the pluses and minuses look like this. What do you think? And what we should be getting towards in this conversation is at the end, you as the salesperson are trying to do a little bit of discovery, but also a bit of education in here in a conversational way where you're saying, look, like we kind of see the world like this, does this jive with the way you see the world? Because the way we see the world, there's a gap here. And our stuff is designed to fill the gap, but we're not talking about our stuff yet. What we see is a gap here. And what we see is, look, if we really wanted to solve this problem, we'd have the best of all these different approaches. I'd have this without this and this without this, right? And if your client is not right at the end of that setup, then there's no point in pitching your stuff. <laughs> There's no point. If I can't get them aligned to my point of view on the world, you know, but and only at that point where the where the customer leans across and says, Yeah, yeah, I wish I had this without this and that with that and this without this, like this best of all world. Yeah, I, if that existed, I'd I I like that. And then you say, Great, okay, now let's talk about us. Yeah, yeah. Then it makes move into us, right? Then it's like, okay, now I'm gonna, you know, here's who we are, this is the value we deliver, this is how we deliver it. Like uh, so I think what we tend to miss is that setup. We just go straight to the demo. Like most startups that I see, they're like, okay, let me show you my stuff. And they jump straight into the demo, but there isn't any kind of establishment at the beginning about like, why are we here? <laughs> what is the point of this meeting? <laughs> right. And I mean, and back to the tweet, we, I was just asking you about, you know, the two things to nail are positioning and the sales pitch. And, it, you know, you just sort of illustrated that as well yeah. here. You and mentioned are, they're really tied, right? I can't get yeah. to, I can't express my point of view on the market until I understand, well, what are the other approaches and how is our approach different? And why does that matter for our best fit customer? you know otherwise i can't i can't actually do this setup piece i need to understand that and i can't do the follow-up follow-through piece if i don't understand our differentiated value which is the crux of the follow-up piece and those two things are generally missing in a typical startup sales pitch just go straight to features here's a feature here's another feature here's another feature mm -hmm. um You've mentioned startups a couple of times, which is obviously critical for startups to be thinking about and honing uh, messaging and, and positioning. But is positioning just for startups? Like, who, what other companies benefit from this? Yeah, well, I mean, here's the thing every company's doing positioning, uh, whether they're doing it consciously or not, right? You're positioning in a market. Um, a lot of the work that I do is with. Uh, what I would call growth stage startups where, um, you know, they've gotten to a certain stage um, and a certain amount of revenue, and now they've really got to smash their foot on the gas. And in order to do that, you need to get really, really crisp with the positioning. So it's often a stage where um, people are looking at positioning and trying to get it really crisp. But that said, there's two things to understand. Like one is 
we don't just carve positioning in stone and that's it. We do it once and we never come back to it. Our products are constantly changing. The market itself is changing. Our competitors are changing. The way buyers behave is changing. So naturally our positioning is going to have to evolve over time. So back when I was a VP marketing, we would do a positioning checkup every six months where we'd get the cross-functional team together and we'd look at the component pieces of positioning and say, hey, has anything changed in the competitive landscape? Um, What do our differentiated features look like? Is that different than six months ago because folks have caught up with us or we've released some new stuff? And then how does that impact our differentiated value? For bigger companies, the changes tend to be less frequent in terms of, you know, if if you're a bigger company and there isn't a lot of change happening in your market right now, the positioning tends to be fairly evolutionary and it happens less frequently. That said, there's a lot of things that can force a change in positioning, even if you're a really, really big company. So something like COVID hits, for example, <laughs> and then you're forced to react to a giant change in the market that was unforeseen. A big acquisition will force you to change your positioning. And so a bunch of the clients I'm working with the last couple of months are big companies that have done an acquisition that are now having to go back and readjust the positioning as a result of that. Sometimes what you'll get is the market essentially changes in a way and it's subtle over time, but all of a sudden, you know, the market that you were strong in and winning in just kind of doesn't exist anymore and has kind of moved on to something else. And it's going to require a fairly drastic change in positioning to get people to understand that you're not that old thing anymore. You're now this new thing. So we're always working on positioning. I don't think it's just for startups, although, you know, for a lot of startups, the positioning stuff is kind of do or die at a certain point in their life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you did mention um, COVID and, uh, you know, a lot of has changed uh, in the last couple of years and continues to change. How is COVID in your in your opinion? How has the pandemic um, changed the role of positioning for companies? Well, it's certainly it's certainly made it an urgent thing for a lot of the companies that I'm working with. Like a, a lot of what I saw in the early days of COVID is companies coming to me and Either they were in terrible trouble, like they were in the travel industry or, you know, parts of the entertainment industry that were completely shut down. Um, And they had other options of places where they could play. And what they were trying to do was a big pivot into something else in order to essentially save the business. So there was a lot of that. Then there was at the opposite end of the spectrum, companies where you know, things were going good, they were growing well, but then COVID hit and they happened to be in healthcare or they happened to be in virtual office stuff. And all of a sudden COVID was just a massive accelerator. And so, you know, they raised a bunch of money and now that again, they're looking to grow really quickly. And so they want to tighten this positioning up to take advantage of this sudden influx of demand. So that happened. And then there was this kind of an in-between thing where there were companies that, you know, served a kind of a horizontal need, but parts of their market were really dead post-COVID and parts of their market were on fire. And so they wanted to do an adjustment in the positioning to kind of refocus around the parts of their addressable market that were really going good and maybe de-emphasize the ones where there wasn't so much demand right now because that part of the, you know, that part of the economy or whatever is just not happening. So there was just a lot of change is what was happening. And so I think it was COVID when it first hit was kind of a perfect storm of outside forces that may cause you to have to react and and readjust your positioning. So things were really busy. What I'm getting now is companies coming out of COVID and now seeing a bit of an adjustment again in the way buyers are behaving, in in purchase priorities and things. And and I'm working with a lot of companies that are doing a post-COVID adjustment. So it's super interesting. Like, you know, I used to talk about when I talked about positioning, I would talk about things that would happen that would cause you to adjust your positioning. And it would be things like, you know, big competitor gets into your space or big competitor makes an acquisition and now is competing with you that wasn't competing with you before. And then I'd talk about outside forces and I'd say things like, you know, we had the great financial crisis, you know, or we we go into a recession or something like that. But most of the time, the companies I'd be talking to, they'd be kind of like, yeah, 
well, you know, we'd probably see that coming. I mean, you know, would that really catch us by surprise? <laughs> and then COVID happens and you're like, oh yeah, no, we there's lots of things happen that we just don't see coming. COVID's a good example of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that you, you know, you, you brought up this, this idea that people have these beliefs that they're going to be able to see these things coming before they actually do, right? Like we, yeah. we're going to have some level of preparedness that, you know, is just expected. And I think that that's a, well, it's a bias, right? That that people have in their own kind of way of thinking. And so would love for you to expand a little bit on, on that topic of bias and how that can sometimes get in the way of how we position. And, and even I think specifically uh, thinking about how you position against competition, there's an interesting role that bias plays there too. Yeah. So we have, so it, most of the companies I work with, we have this kind of bias that's related to where the company came from. And so so a lot of times we'll have a hard time doing the repositioning and the friction is really that people are kind of stuck in the past a little bit. Like so when I do these exercises with companies, we tend to have a cross-functional team and you see a real difference between the folks that have been at the company for a long time and the folks that are new. And the folks that have been at the company for a long time are, you know, they tend to say things like, but that's just not what we are, or we've always been this. <laughs> Whereas the newer come, the newer employees don't have that baggage, right? They come in and they're like, what? No, we're not. We haven't been that for years. Like, what do you mean? Like, we're not that. That's not what we are today. So we tend to see a lot of bias that way. You know, like we got into this business to be a database and we're going to be the world's best database that does this thing. But now we're going to fast forward five, six years. And you know what? We're a data warehouse. We're actually not a database. And everyone's like, but but we're database people. That's what we are. (laughs) It's like, well, actually, from a customer's point of view, not really. So that's the worst bias that I see is when doing positioning work is there's this pull of the past and this pull of when we started this business, we intended it to be this, even though the market's moved on, the product's really different, the competitors are really different. You know, we launched this thing as email and and what it really is is team collaboration or it's chat. And that makes way more sense to position it that way. But people are a bit like, yeah, but we're email. (laughs) So I think that for a lot of companies, it's really hard to let go of that baggage and look at the product really from a customer's point of view and say, I'm a customer. I've never encountered this before. I'm looking at your product for the first time. What is the best way to contextualize what we do? And it might not be the way we contextualized it five years ago. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic point. And, you know, and and even further thinking about internally, I know you mentioned customers clearly should be involved when you're developing your positioning. And I'd love to hear some tactics on on ways to do that. But Mm. beyond customers, even the internal stakeholders that are involved in crafting this, can you talk a little bit about like, what do you recommend to organizations who are revisiting positioning or coming up with just brand new positioning? Who, Who does that? Who's involved? Yeah, so I really believe that positioning needs to be a team sport. It can't be something that product marketing cooks up on their own and then reveals to the rest of the organization and says, thou shalt do this positioning like this. I think uh, you'd never get buy-in doing that and it wouldn't be good positioning. So the reality is that different parts of the organization have very valuable things to contribute to positioning. And the best positioning is going to come about when we do it as a group facilitated exercise. So, you know, sales knows an awful lot about what's going on in the ground. Um, They know an awful lot about what competitors they're seeing and we're not seeing. Um, They know that better than any other part of the organization. Product, for example, knows a lot about um, capabilities and how our capabilities stack up to other competitors or other options out in the market. So they need to be involved. 
Um, customer success sees a completely different view of what customers are doing. They often understand, you know, the difference between what a customer was expecting versus what they actually got. And when they started to actually use it, here's what happened. Um, customer success increasingly is also involved in expansion inside of an account. And how do you actually, you know, grow your usage inside an account? So they see sales in a post-sales way. And then there's marketing that really understands about what's hitting and what's not hitting in terms of lead generation and what's getting people excited to have a meeting with us in the first place. So we really need to get all these groups together. And then in my opinion, you've also got like the CEO or the senior executives, they're out there pitching at conferences and often getting pulled into sales calls. They need to be positioning the product the same way too. So if we really want to get alignment across all those teams, we need to have all those teams involved. Um, and, and frankly, it'll be a better result because each of those teams has something very unique to bring, bring to the process. So in my opinion, product marketing or marketing can can shepherd this, right? They can be the people that says, hey, we need to do a positioning thing. Let's get everybody together. And then, but we're going to have to work on the positioning together. We can't do it in a, in a bubble without having all these other groups involved. And then having them involved helps them get buy into the whole thing. What we should get at the end is positioning that everybody's aligned on. And now we can all go execute on it. And we're all executing on the same positioning, which helps it stay really consistent across the organization. So I think this is crazy for people to try to work on this stuff where it's just marketing, or sometimes I see people where they try to do it and it's just with the CEO. And I think it's really hard to get marketing, sales, product buy-in if we're trying to do positioning, but those groups are not involved. That makes a ton of sense. I am also wondering, as you're developing the positioning cross-functionally as a team sport, as you mentioned, how do you pull the customer into that? How, what have you seen to be successful with teams who have done this? In the work that I do, one of the reasons why we have this cross-functional team together is because different parts of the organization are working with customers in different ways. For example, if, I've go, if I go to the sales team, if we have direct sales interacting with customers in the purchase process... Sales is talking to customers every day, but having very specific conversations. So they know a lot about what's the status quo inside the account. They know a lot about what other solutions end up on the short list. So my sales team is a very good source of information to go and say, what do we got to beat in order to win a deal? Sales knows this right? If I got a good sales team, sales knows this. When I get to customer success, customer success knows a lot about the difference between what we pitched and what customers actually got. If there's a gap there, success knows all about that <laughs> because they're answering those calls every single day. Success also knows a lot about what happens after the sale and you know how does that uh, how does that account evolve over time? So where might we expand into the account? Once they get doing this differently, what are the next things that they need? So I think customer success has a lot of customer involvement, but again, it's different, right? It's different. If I go over the product side of the thing, often product is doing a lot of customer interviews, but again, they're very focused on something else. So they're talking about differentiated features. Like, so what if we did this thing? And is that different than this? And so they know a lot about what how customers prioritize functionality. And then I got marketing. Now, marketing is hopefully having some interactions with customers. In some companies, they don't do a lot of customer interaction, but they do understand how customers behave at the very beginning of the purchase cycle. So they understand what a, not even a prospect yet, just a suspect reacts to and doesn't react to and what they do. And so in the work that I do, it's funny, when I started consulting, I felt like what I was really going to have to do in order for us to nail positioning was I was going to have to go and do a whole bunch of customer interviews, pull a bunch of data, bring that together, and then we would use that as the starting point. And what I discovered is I'd do that and I'd spend months doing it. And then I'd get together with the executive team and I'd say, here's what I found out. And half the executive team would be like, huh, that's interesting. Didn't know that. But the other half of the executive team was like, we paid you to do that, dude. You could have just come and asked me. I would. I knew that. We do this every day. How could you possibly figure this out better than us? And so 
the reality I came to was teams know a lot about what's going on with customers, but each group knows a different thing. What I actually have to do is get the team together and pull it out of them. Oh, I'd love to be on a a fly on the wall in some of those sessions. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So there's a lot of contention normally. Sure. Again, because it's like, you know, it's like that thing where, you know, there's a group of people and and we've all got blindfolds on and we're all touching a different part of the elephant. And the person who's touching the tail says it's a snake. And the person who's touching the leg says, oh, it's a tree. (laughs) You know, it's like that. (laughs) Sales is over there on the tail going, no, it's this. And products over there going, no, no, it's it's this customer says is like no no it's this and so what you need is somebody that can draw the picture of the elephant and say yeah I see your tail is there and the trunk is there and the bag is there but it comes together in this thing and we don't actually have many opportunities in a company to actually bring the cross-functional team a cross-functional team like that together and have that discussion where all the other groups get to hear what the other groups are, what the other groups know. And so not only do we get positioning out, but we actually get this, again, this, this cross-pollination across the teams of, well, here's what we're seeing in sales. Oh, that's funny. Well, here's what I'm seeing in success. Oh, that's funny. Here's what I'm seeing in marketing. Right. And I'm sure people who join those sessions say, you know, from a specific department, walk out with a whole new perspective of- exactly customer, the market, how your positioning fits, what the competitive landscape looks like. Exactly. Sounds amazing. Exactly. And everybody's teaching everybody else something about that. Yep. Absolutely. So it's funny, one of our guests um, on season two, Dan Storms, he's a big fan of yours. He's uh, heads up product at Cook Unity. Oh, cool. Um, And he used your book in combination with Clayton Christensen's Jobs to be Done book and and build the positioning for the company. And he, you know, if you have a chance to listen to it, it's a really great story. Um, And we told him you were going to be on the show because he gave a big shout out to you and, and, you know, credited you for a lot of the success there. Um, And he had a follow up question, which was. Could you ask April to dive more into what is a best fit customer and how have you or other companies tackled identifying them, whether it's B2B or B2C? So this idea of best fit customer is really important. And to be honest with you, in B2C, I have no idea how you do it because B2C is not my jam at all. And and in fact, I think this might be a really, really hard thing to do in B2C. But let me tell you about B2B because this is something I know a lot about. So one of the one of the first times where I had this kind of epiphany about, you know, there's good fit customers and not good fit customers was this early in my career. And I worked at this company and I was trying to figure out what are what our actual competitive alternatives were. And so I did a survey of our existing customer base and I asked them, you know, who do we compete with? And then I had a bunch of different questions, but one of the questions was, who do we compete with? And the other one was like, when you bought our product, what other things did you look at? And so I was going to try to get, I assumed I would get this nice picture of the competitive landscape. And instead what I got, so I surveyed everybody. I got a whole bunch of results. I think we had maybe a hundred companies responded to this thing and I graphed it and it was a mess. There was no pattern. It was, it was all over the place. So I'm sitting there looking at this thing going, well, that's depressing. I haven't learned anything. Like people think we compete with all kinds of stuff here. This is a this is a mess. And while I was all depressed about this, staring at my screen, uh, my boss walked by and, and the CEO, and he says, What you doing? And I said, Well, I did this survey and I'm trying to figure out competitive, you know, who we compete with. And this is what I got. It's a bunch of junk and doesn't actually tell me anything. And he says, Hmm. And he looks looking at the graph and he goes, wait, who said we compete with that? And I was like, "Mm, I don't know. Let me pull up the spreadsheet, pull up the spreadsheet. I'm like, "Uh, that's Bank of Montreal. And he goes, oh, Bank of Montreal. We hate Bank of Montreal. We wish we never sold Bank of Montreal. They're the worst customer we have. They're using us in some weird way. You know who I do not care what they think? I do not care what Bank of Montreal thinks. Take that out of there. Like, I don't want you ever asking them what they, you know, he's like, they're weird. They're a weird customer. We'll never sell another customer that looks like them. I'm like, okay, we'll take that out. He goes like, 
Uh, now I got to see your spreadsheet, April. Like, who else is on this spreadsheet? Because I think you're getting some bad data here. So I pull the spreadsheet out, and he's like, "Oh!" And he starts crossing them off. Not these people. Not these people. Not these. He's like, "Oh, this one we sold in our first month of business. They bought bought it for some weird use case. They're weird. Take them off." And so we crossed off a whole bunch, like maybe twenty or thirty companies out of a hundred. And then all of a sudden, there's the pattern. So. What it taught me was that sometimes what I've got is bad data and I'm mixing up good fit customers with bad fit customers when I'm asking questions like, what are we compared with? And so for positioning, what we're trying to get at is positioning that makes our differentiated value really sing for customers that really, really care about that differentiated value, these best fit people. So I actually don't want to pull in the data from these bad fit folks because it's going to contaminate my thinking. What I actually want to know is for the people that you know love us, the people that are super happy, the folks that closed, they, they closed with us really quickly, they didn't ask for a discount, they intuitively got what our value was all about. After the sale, they love us. Doesn't mean they never complain or challenge us, but the challenge we get from them is good right? Because they're using the product in the way we intended. Those people I care a lot about. And every B2B company out there has a group of customers that are like that. And then they got a few that are not that. <laughs> and the really dangerous part about it is often, particularly in startups, you'll, you'll get a startup that only has 20 or 30 customers, but one of them is Walmart and it's, you know, and it's huge and they do half their revenue with this one big customer. And even though it's a bad fit, that customer has this massive influence over what we're doing in positioning and what we're doing everywhere else. And what we do in the workshops that I do is we'll have this conversation about who's good fit, like who is easy to sell to, who's really happy, who, you know, recommends us without us having it. And, and importantly, who's not so good fit? Like, even though they might be a big customer, maybe we landed them and maybe they pay us a lot, but we don't expect to close another deal like that ever. And we'll write down the bad fit ones and we'll essentially put them in the parking lot and say, for the rest of this exercise, they don't count. So when I say, what would the customer do if we didn't exist? I don't care about Walmart. I care about everybody else. So we'll have that. So we'll, we'll do that. So that's the first thing. Second thing is when we're doing this exercise, the first thing we have to understand is what our differentiated value is. So as we're going through the exercise, we're like, okay, what would customers do if we didn't exist? How, what do we have capabilities wise that those alternatives don't have? And how does that translate to differentiated value? Once I have that differentiated value, then I can say, look, like I've got a solution for restaurants and my differentiated value are these three things. And I could sell it theoretically to any restaurant on the planet, but not every restaurant cares about those three value points the same. And so the question I'm trying to ask myself to really define best fit customers is what are the characteristics of a target account that make them really care a lot about that differentiated value. And sometimes it's easy, right? Sometimes it'll be like, oh, if you're in this particular industry, then you care a lot more about speed. And therefore that's, you know, folks in this industry. So, but a lot of times it's not, it's horizontal or it's a combination of things. It's like, you know, you're this size with this business model and you use, if you use this other kind of software, then you actually really care a lot about this. Whereas if you don't use that software, you don't. And so this is the conversation we have in the workshops I do around best fit customers is once we get this differentiated value, then we can have a theoretical discussion about, well, what would it, you know, what would make that, what would make a customer a really good fit for that in particular? So for example, I had this client of mine and what they do is uh, software that helps you execute on a strategic plan. And their big differentiated value is they make it really easy to visualize where you're tracking to the plan and where you're not tracking to the plan. So, you know, so that's their thing. It's this easy visualization so that you can prioritize and make sure that you hit the plan, basically. 
Um, so you got like an early warning system. Where are you going off the plan? Then you can correct. Now we get to this conversation about, well, who cares a lot about that? Well, you could say anybody that has a strategic plan cares about that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I've worked at companies where we had a strategic plan and we kind of didn't care that much about it. We kind of didn't care if we hit it. We kind of didn't measure it quarterly. It was there, but it wasn't a big priority. So then we ask the thing, we say, well, if this thing really ensures that you hit it, who really cares that they really hit the plan? And you know who cares if they really hit the plan? People that got a strategic plan because they got in trouble. So you got in trouble with a regulator. You had to go to your board and say, oops, we got a fine. And what does the board say? What are you doing to fix this? And you say, don't worry, I got a new strategic plan. And the strategic plan is going to fix that. And the board says, great, come back to us in two months and report on that. Now, these folks really need this software, right? Because I got to go, now I got to go show the board and I got this nice visualization. I can show exactly how we're tracking it. I can prove all this stuff. So, so as a company, I might say, well, I could sell to anybody that's doing strategic planning and, you know, I could work with consultants that help people do a strategic plan. That would be fine. But if I really wanted to knock this thing out of the park, I could actually be looking at companies that have gotten in trouble with a regulator and then go to them and say, okay, now you got a strategic plan and you got to hit it. We're the software that's going to help you do that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's sort of like helping you narrow in on the right, uh, sorry, I'm probably going to kind of butcher the summary of this, but uh, helping you narrow in on the companies that will find the most value exactly in your solution. Exactly. They find them, but they, 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 it's the companies that really put a high price on that value that say, oh, I really, really need that. And by extension, they're super easy to market to. They're super easy to sell to. And then we don't have unlimited marketing and sales resources. We want to focus those marketing and sales resources on the people that are most, most likely to buy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, question here. One more question for you before we move into our, our lightning Round so, um, you know, there's there's talk about positioning, but then we also hear about categories and category creation and category leaders and mm. can I just create my own category and be a yeah. leader in it? Um, and you know, we've all seen the example where you know some executive, whether marketing, strategy, sales, uh, says the company needs to be a category leader, and therefore yeah. we're now category leaders in left-handed widgets. Let's right. say, yeah. <laughs> A world leader in left-handed widgets. That's right. <laughs> so what's the difference between positioning and categories in your in your perspective? Well, the thing that people kind of miss about, about categories is uh, like what is the what is the job of a market category? The job of a market category is it helps customers make sense of where you fit in the overall market. So if you come to me and say, hey, I got a thing and it's a CRM. I know what a CRM is. And I'll make a whole bunch of assumptions about you. Like, oh, you're a CRM. You must compete with Salesforce. I'll, get, I'll make an assumption about what your price is. I'll, I'll say, well, you must sell to the head of sales. You must sell to VP sales. I'll make an assumption about features you've got and stuff. And so it's a shorthand that helps me figure out what you are. And so done well, market category sets off a bunch of assumptions in the minds of customers that are true about my product. And I don't have to teach you too much about it. You're like, oh, okay. CRM. I get what that is. Now we can move on to how you're different and how you're better. So this idea of um, creating a market category, uh, you know, when we do positioning, we can either position in an existing category or create a new one. So if we're positioning in an existing category, we kind of have two choices there. We can either position ourselves as the leader of the whole category, like I just say, unqualified, I'm a CRM. Well, that's basically like me walking in and declaring war on Mark Benioff, right? Like, that's it. Uh, we're, we're, uh, you're like, okay, how are you better than Salesforce? <laughs> but most of the time, we wouldn't do that. If there's, a, if there's an established market leader, like even when I was at IBM and we had a lot of money and resources to go do this stuff, we generally wouldn't take on an established market leader in a new market. What we do to start is we'd carve off a piece of the market that was underserved 
establish ourselves there and then grow from there until we got big enough that we were number two and then we would attack number one. So most folks, um, the easiest way to be successful in a market that's new that you're entering is to start in an underserved market where the market's already well understood. Because I can say, well, I'm CRM for dogs. And you're like, oh, well, that's different. <laughs> I can talk about why that, you know, how I'm serving that market better than Salesforce. Um, so most of the companies we know today, uh, and in fact, most successful tech companies, if you look at like, and I actually pulled these numbers once just to validate this, but if you look at companies that have IPO'd in the last five years, tech companies that have IPO'd in the last five years, 93% of those companies are positioned as a niche play in a large existing market category. Most of those companies are doing at least 100 million revenue, lots of them doing way more than that. So people think that niche means small. It doesn't at all. Um, and in fact, if you look, that the overwhelming majority of successful companies that actually live to be big enough to go public are positioning themselves as a niche play in like 92%, literally 93%. It's the vast, vast majority. So only that little sliver left over are actually category creators. So, so it tells you a few things. One, maybe you don't want to do category creation because <laughs> it certainly isn't the most common way to be successful. But often, well, not often, sometimes we are in a situation where the category is emerging and it's not there yet. And so I don't have the luxury of this shorthand of saying, oh, we're a CRM, because the thing I'm doing, it simply doesn't exist yet in the minds of customers. There is no category. And in those cases, I am going to be forced to create a market category because a good one does not exist. If I take my thing and try to position it in any of the categories I could, it actually makes it sound worse than it is. So I'm going to have to create one. Creating a market category is an incredible amount of work. Like it typically takes um, a decade for a category to get firmly formed, which means you're going to have to have outside investment and not only that, patient outside investors that are going to be patient enough to allow you to do a decade's worth of category creation before you then establish yourself as the leader in that market category. The risk in doing category creation is, that first of all, there's all this education. So instead of being able to just show up and say, hey, I'm a CRM, I show up and say, oh, my gosh, what I'm doing is I'm a flu flummer. And you're like, what? What's a flu flummer? And you're like, oh, I'm so glad you asked. Let me explain. <laughs> and then I have to teach you what a flu flummer is. I have to teach you why flu flummer is important because you didn't even know you had the problem. If you did, there would be a category of solutions for it called flu flumming, but you didn't even know that. So first I got to sell you on the problem. Then I got to sell you on the solution. Then I got to sell you on the fact that I'm the best solution of all the people tackling the flu flummer thing. You should go with me. So, you know, there's lots of ways to mess this up. The most common way we mess it up is you do all the work to create the market category in the minds of customers, but at the exact moment where the category is starting to emerge and people are like, I get what that is. I'm not really sure who the leader of that market is, but I kind of get that category exists. Then that is the perfect time for a venture-backed startup to enter. So what you get is this it, unbelievable competition. And often the company that created the category at that point, their investors are exhausted and, and out of patience. And these new companies show up with fresh money and, and everything else, and they beat you. That is why we don't use MySpace. We use Facebook. That is why we don't Google, we don't use Ask Jeeves, we use Google. Most of the tech products that we know and love were fast followers and came behind a category creator to then take advantage of all the hard work that the category creator did to ultimately dominate the market before that person got, before that company got firmly established as the leader. There are very, very few examples of companies that created a market category when the company started and then survive to own the category later. There, it, there's very few, almost none. What is, what is slightly more common is you'll get companies 
like, uh, you know, a good example is Qualtrics. You'll get companies that are, you know, they start out as a niche play in an existing category. They exist, they, they get bigger and bigger and bigger, and then they finally dominate the category. And then growth starts to slow because they're absolutely dominating the category and they've kind of run out of room to grow. And what they do is they either move to a new category or they redefine the boundaries of the category to make the category bigger. And then they create this new category and then dominate that. So if you look at Qualtrics, did an amazing job of this where, you know, they were just another survey tool in the survey market, grew really quickly, and they were just survey stuff until they were 300 million revenue. And then they got on this whole, oh, it's about, I forget what the name of the category was, but like customer experience or something like that. Experience management. Right. And so they, you know, and that was an attempt at expanding our ideas of where could we use surveys and what are surveys good for? And we're stretching the boundaries of this thing because you know, we're already dominating it. We need to stretch it out. So that actually works pretty well. Most of the examples we get of companies that created a category were absolutely dominating their category before they started, <laughs> before they went to do this category creation thing, they were already big. They already had the resources and the market momentum to go and do it. What really bugs me is there's people out there right now going to little startups and saying, you should, you know, you have to be a category creator or else you're not going to be successful. And that is absolute hogwash. Like that is just absolutely not true. The data does not support that. And in fact, if you really wanted to do what was the most common thing that leads to success, you would position yourself as a niche play in a very big market and grow from there. That's my rant about category creation. <laughs> I love it. It's just so informative. So informative. And it's a really, it's a really great way to break it down and, and talk about the pros and cons of creating a category versus showing up an existing in an existing. Fund. I think that I think the problem the, the thing about this category creation is I think that VCs like it, but but they're looking at the wrong data. Like they're kind of looking at the end result and they say you should create a category just like Qualtrics did. And what they're not looking at is what was Qualtrics doing before they were 300 million? <laughs> Yeah, when I get to 300 million, I'll start doing the Qualtrics thing. But <laughs> and they're trying to take this end state and apply it back to somebody brand new entering into a market and say, well, that's not how you would enter it. I mean, and, and a lot of stuff happened before they got there. And so most of the examples people give of category creators are, you know, again, it, it's it's irrelevant to you if what you're trying to do is get into a new market or trying to start something new or whatever. So I don't right. know. It, it sounds it almost, yeah, it sounds good, but I but it it's stupid. Yeah, it sounds like <laughs> it's not the right place to to start, right? Yeah, not the right yeah. place to focus at the beginning. Again, sometimes you have no choice and you got to go there, and there's just no other way to do it. Um, but you should go into it with your eyes open that you really don't want to do this unless it's there is no other choice. If there's no other choice, then go do it. But right now, everybody's treating it like a little growth hack thing. Well, oh, you know, we'll, the easiest way to grow is we'll just invent a market and then say we dominate that. It's like, well, no, <laughs> that's not how that works. All right, so we're going to move into our lightning question round. So these are meant to just be fast little questions we kind of run through. So let's see here. Uh, can you tell us about a book you've recently read that you'd recommend to our listeners? You know, I, I was I had a long vacation recently and I read a whole bunch of books, but they were mainly just fiction books. And so uh, people were recommending a lot of books to me. Like I read, um, everybody's talking about the metaverse. So I read Snow Crash, which is this really old book that the guy where the guy invented the concept of the metaverse. And you know, it was good. And, and that bit where he talks about the metaverse was good, but it was it was a really poorly written book. It kind of bugged me that way. And then yeah. I read a book called The Gentleman in Moscow, which was, um, you know, the topic not so interesting to me, but so beautifully written that it kind of, it was a good counterpoint to the other one. And I read yeah. Claire and the Sun because all the tech people are reading that one because there's an artificial intelligence character in there. Um, but the book I'm reading right now is called 4,000 Hours and it's a business book and it's it's written by a guy who's an expert in time management. And his whole thing is kind of like, look, you're always going to have too many things to do. So what you really need to do is just stop doing a whole bunch of things. And so it's conceptually, I think it's really interesting. I'm not quite done it yet though. 
Those are good, good suggestions. Uh, I like this idea of stopping, <laughs> stopping yeah. a few things. If you're got too much going on, I'll have to check that one out. Easier uh, said than done, buddy, is what I keep saying when I'm reading this book, but uh, you know, he better, he better come up with some good strategies to actually, I'm halfway through and he's still not telling me how to do it. So I'm a little right. bit worried that that this is it. He's just going to say, just stop doing the things. And I'm like, Okay, but how? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, give me a framework here. (laughs) So kind of thinking about, you know, the the many of the guests that we have on our show and our listeners really are those that are um, champions for and invested in uh, this notion of customer feedback, understanding your customers to make great decisions. So um, do you have any advice for, for people who might be working with teams or leaders that are resistant to pulling in customer feedback, any advice you might give someone to try to convince them the value of, of customer feedback? I know that we yeah. believe it's inherently valuable, but I'm not sure if you've uh, been in positions or have advice on oh, yeah. how to sort of tee this up. Yeah. I do think that often senior leaders, again, there's this bias about the past where they'll say, well, we know this because we knew it five years ago. And, and, but then the business has changed, the market's changed, everything's changed. And it's like, do we know it right now? Do we actually know it right now? And often the way I'll tell you, one of the ways that I've gotten buy-in on this is to just go do a little, like don't do a lot, don't go nuts, but just go do a little and bring a few of these little sparkly insights back. And then everybody starts getting interested about, well, what else could you figure out? So I remember once I was in with a, I I was working with a company and they had this really fixed idea of who their best fit customer was, like the profile of that. And so we ran a little net promoter score survey, like really quick and dirty, pulled off 10 companies that had scored really, really high on net promoter and then did interviews with them. And in particular, in the interviews, they were a bit like jobs to be done interviews and that we were Mm -hmm. like, what were you doing before? What caused you to change? And why did you pick us? And after we had done five of those interviews, I kind of casually mentioned some of the stuff that we were finding in these interviews to the CEO and it blew his mind. (laughs) He was like, what? They're doing what? (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, coming with the receipts is pretty powerful, I Mm -hmm. think, to senior executives. But I think if folks are really resistant, you almost got to go and find a way to dip a toe in there and bring a little bit back enough to sort of convince them that maybe we don't have all the answers. Maybe we actually do need to go and fish for this stuff. Yeah. It's a really great tip. So instead of trying to, you know, come up with this massive program and get a bunch of funding and uh, you know, starting small and, and starting giving small and then go ask for the funding. Once you got everybody all jazzed about it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I like it. Funding for the big one. <laughs> all right. One last question. When you think about the future of B2B marketing and positioning, um, which is, you know, where, where you're focused now and have for the basically the entirety of your career. What do you what are you most excited about? What, 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 what does the future hold? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't think I'm very good at predicting the future. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think but I will say this, like in marketing, I feel like there's a bit of a pendulum that swings back and forth between tactics and strategy. And I think we have come out of maybe a decade where that pendulum was firmly over on the tactical side. And, you know, and we spent all our time thinking in marketing, thinking about growth hacking and tips and tricks and little tactical stuff, like 15 ways to get better at blah, blah, blah. And we were completely ignoring the more strategic underpinning of what we do in marketing, which is, you know, are we even going after the right people? Do we really understand how we win deals? Do we really understand who we compete with? Um, And so I feel like this pendulum swung back a little bit towards the strategic side, which is why we've got this little product marketing renaissance going on right now. And, uh, And so I'm really excited about that. So I'm really excited about people, you know, even looking at the marketing function as something that is more strategic to the business and not just, you know, a tactics factory, basically. Yeah, I love it. It's a nice way to sort of reframe the role, right? Yeah. And maybe not the role, but just even the focus, right? Tactics versus strategy and, and thinking and, and knowing that um, there is much more of a strategic aspect that has 
fundamentally more value maybe than just a handful of tactics. Yeah. Yeah. We're, you know, we're never going to stop doing tactics, obviously. Like, you know, the rubber meets the road. We got to, we got to generate leads. But, um, but, it, but all that stuff works better if we get the time and, and, and the resources to actually focus on the strategy stuff too. Yeah. Makes sense. All right, April, thank you so much for your time. This has been incredible. Um, learned a ton and, and thank you uh, to you uh, from user testing for me and, and on behalf of our listeners as well. Well, thanks so much for having me. Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub, usertesting.com slash podcast and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts Spotify, Overcast, or Google Play, so you can never miss a good episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts.